You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. A better way from Hebrews 7 verse 18. We're actually uh, carrying over. These are the two verses we closed with last week's service with last week. Very simple message on Melchizedek, right? Or no, some of you who are there, you're like, that was very complicated. Well, it was a, is a deep concept, and hopefully that spurred some conversation in your groups this last week, um, and we were able to go into it a little deeper. Uh, but on the heels of that, uh, we find in verse 18, uh, where he's been speaking about the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The, he's been speaking about uh, the Levitical priesthood and the new royal priesthood. And so he's been speaking about kind of this, this conversation. And so he begins in verse 18 of Hebrews 7. I'm gonna read a little bit of a longer passage here and then we'll, we'll kind of try to introduce what this better way is. You'll see this word better mentioned a couple times. Hebrews 7, verse 18. It says, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope, get that, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. That's a really key verse for today, but let's keep reading. Verse 20, and it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, And here's a quote from the Old Testament. Here's Hebrews doing a hyperlink here. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And verse 22, and this is another key verse. This makes Jesus the guarantor. Some of your translations might say the guarantee of a better covenant. Better, better, better. Verse 23, the former priests were made in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, another key verse, he is able to save to the uttermost those who, here it is again, draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And the final verse is here. It says in verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest Jesus is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests of the Old Testament, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of an oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Some of you are like, what is that talking about? Well, we'll, we're gonna get into that today, okay? A better way. And I want you to be thinking about that phrase back in verse 19. Maybe the booth can even leave that verse up there for a little while. Verse 19, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. A better hope. Maybe you've said this before, (laughs) a better way, 
You ever, you ever said that before? Uh, I wish there was a better way, you know? <laughs> um, there's a lot of things in life that that comes out. I, I, think, I think maybe if you're like my wife and I, we, we are kind of two different ways of accomplishing a task at home, you know, the honeydew list or whatever that you have to accomplish. Um, I'm always asking the question, is there a better way to do this, right? And my wife is always asking, this way's as good as any, let's do it, right? Jamie's ready to jump in and accomplish the task and I'm sitting over there in the corner thinking about how we might accomplish the task in a better and more efficient way. And by the end of the time, maybe we're done around the same time, but most of the time Jamie's figured it out and already accomplished the task and I'm over there thinking, but what if we and she's already done it, right? So some of you know that like, kind of way of thinking and doing things. There, there's always gotta be a better way, and you're always trying to figure out a better way, and you're always trying to make a better way to, rather than just doing it or doing any old way, right? Um, and then I, I was thinking about this today, just trying to get into our minds by way of introduction this concept that leads us into this very amazing and powerful passage in Hebrews 7. Where I, I think in general, we have to think in context of the, of the whole Bible sometimes that allows us to grasp what's going on here in Hebrews 7. But ultimately, there, there is a, a better way to relate to God, and that is kind of what he's trying to describe to us. You know, today, in today's world, we relate to one another all the time. We communicate with another, one another. Uh, most of the time in today's world, it's a very modern, technologically driven world, and we communicate to each other all the time through uh, the internet, through text messaging, through online, through social media, through email. We communicate to each other. We relate to each other in relationships in this kind of online, and, and today there's a, the growing uh, popularity of virtual reality, right? I don't know, some of you love those VR sets, those are pretty fun. I don't know if you've had it, I know there's some people who are some real uh, virtual reality nerds here in the church, I know they're all into it, okay? And it's a lot of fun, there's nothing wrong with it, so much fun, but I got to be thinking about that in relation to this, that in this virtual reality, and today uh, Zuckerberg's has this concept of the, the metaverse, where this, kind of life that you can live in this virtual reality space. You can almost escape the world uh, by living in this virtual sense where you can have your own person, your lifestyle, you can actually buy and purchase things like NFTs and all this stuff that exist in this digital space. And it, and it brings up the question sometimes then what is the value of our physical space when this virtual space often takes the priority so much? We live in this like virtual reality more so than sometimes we live in the actual physical reality where it's actually, uh, you could say, better to be with one another than to be in this virtual space. There's a better way to relate and it's almost like as if all you knew about was interacting with one another in a virtual reality and I were to come up to you and say, look, that's pretty cool that you can like interact online and text and message and FaceTime and all that, but what if I told you there was a better way? <laughs> what, if, what if I told you you could actually look at someone face to face? You, you could actually shake their hand and the person you love, you could actually embrace them in a real physical hug. You're like, wow, right? What, what if I could speak to you and then as I speak to you, you can smell my breath? <laughs> <laughs> 
And you're like, well, I don't know if that would be ideal, I know, but um, some of you, I've always wondered why you sit so far back, and that's probably why. But this idea of I can see you, I can smell you, I can touch you, I can hug you, I can be with you. There's this better way of interacting with one another. Yet both, both the virtual space and the physical, physical space are means by which we interact, are they not? I can have a relationship with someone online, but that relationship that I can have in a physical way, in fact, a brother uh, messaged me today. They were feeling sick, still recovering, and they're like, I can't be there today, brother. I just, I, I miss you guys, and I said I miss you all as well, and he's just like, I can't wait to get back together with one another, you know? They can watch online, and I I'm, I'm likely bet they're watching online right now. There's nothing wrong with that, but there is this sense of missing that physical interaction with one another that the online just doesn't have for it. And so, in a sense, this is driving into a very part of a, a core of who we are as people, and that we are built for relationships, are we not? You and I, we, we are relational beings. We've been created by God to relationally interact. That's how we work and how we move and how we be. It is that relationship that drives everything. We are relational beings. We're actually created not to just interact with one another. We're created to relate with God in a relational way. In fact, if you think back with me all the way to the beginning of the Bible and you're like, oh boy, we're gonna be here a long time. The preacher's starting in Genesis. All right, so you go back to Genesis, right? Adam and Eve, right? Relating and walking with God in the cool of the garden and they spoke and talked with them in openness and ease, in peace and righteousness. There was a relational element between God and his creation And yet what happened? (laughs) They disobeyed. They did not want to act on behalf of God. They wanted to be God themselves. And they supplanted God's authority for their own. They wanted to define right and wrong in their own terms. They wanted to go about and say, this is what what I think things are. And, And they took of the fruit and they disobeyed. And that relationship was severed. Something was broken. Something was messed up. Something then became not right. We've seen that from the history of mankind till now. We are living in that experience of something relationally between one another because you have conflict in your relationships. You have situations that arise that relationships are not at peace and at ease with one another. There's conflict and let alone the conflict that we have with God. And yet, we see in the Bible, God initiates a relationship whereby he's going to restore the relationships of the world. He initiates a relationship with one person. You know who that person is? Genesis 12, he calls a man named Abram, right? Who he then later changes the name to Abraham, who is the father of many nations, the father of the Israelite people. God initiates a relationship with Abraham and says to you, Abraham, I'm gonna make a great nation out of you. I'm gonna bless, in fact, the whole world through you and your people. And I'm gonna use you and the Israelite people to become this way in which God relates with his creation. A way whereby God can relate to a sinful humanity, a holy God can relate to us. I'm gonna use this Israelite people to uh, rectify a, a situation that has been broken. And he sets up the law and he gives us the Old Testament and he sets up the Levitical priesthood and there's priests mediating this relationship. There's the tabernacle where God dwells among his people. God dwells and relates with the Israelite people so that that nation becomes a light to the whole wide world where God in a way you could say builds a bridge 
As we looked at this word priest in Latin means pontifex, it means bridge builder. And I think that has this concept that's been floating around in my head where Israel, in a sense, this nation from Abraham becomes the bridge builders for the world. Israel becomes this little pocket, of this bridge whereby God can interact with mankind and then from there, the priests would be able to build the bridge to mediate the relationship between God and sinful man. And yet we know it didn't really work out, did it? Israel did not fulfill this in this manner and God had never intended them to do so. But the Israelite nation, the Levitical system, the sacrifices in the Old Testament became a shadow, became a picture, a motif, an illustration for the one who would finally complete this for all time a priest that would one day come, a sacrifice that would one day be paid that would finalize what has been uh, prophesied, what has been uh, alluded to that would come. So Israel becomes this nation of priests mediating and embodying the presence of God on earth as a light to all the nations. You could say Israel became a vehicle that would deliver the Messiah. They were to be the bridge to deliver the final bridge builder between God and man. The relationship that's been severed would now be bridged through the cross of Jesus Christ who would now mediate between God and man, restoring a broken relationship, becoming and doing what man could never do himself. Jesus becomes the perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice, and the perfect savior for you and for me. So imagine it's going from this Old Testament way of relating to God, almost as if we were existing virtually to God in this virtual space, to going from that and that way of uh, uh, relating to God in the Old Testament to then in the new and under the new covenant and under Jesus to, to dwelling in a relationship physically in close proximity and nearness. For this passage that we've been looking at, it says that in, the, in verse 19, it says that hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. That we have a relational nearness to him. That, that our guilt and our sin no longer stinks in front of him, right? <laughs> but that we've been cleaned, right? In the whole Old Testament, you through Leviticus, it's all about cleanliness. You could not, as a priest, go before God and go before the Holy of Holies if you had blemishes or sickness or disease or deformities. There was a, a wholeness and a cleanliness that was required in order to enter the Holy Holies, that you couldn't just waltz up to him for our sin, in a sense, stank before his holiness. So how is it that we could draw near to God and no longer stink with sin? How is it that we could be washed clean, have white robes that would be cleansed before a holy and pure God? How is it you and I could do that? What in the manner of way could this possibly happen? Well, Hebrews teaches us about this. Hebrews teaches us about how Jesus became that. The, the sin uh, was washed white as snow, right? So that we could be clean and white before him and, and, and walk before him. For Jesus, once for all, a one time for all sacrifice would do this. So that now you and me here in 2022 can go before the throne of God. <laughs> we can talk to him. He can hear us, we can walk in open relationship, we can draw near to him, and the Bible says he, he will draw near to us. That is almost scandalous when you think about it. <laughs> it's almost like, how is that possible? Especially when you begin to know yourself. 
See, God made a better way for a better relationship through his perfect priesthood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, he made a better relationship. And I think relationship is a good way to form our thinking about the Bible and what we do here as in the faith or our religion. And that word can be tough to think about sometimes. But in a sense, that word relationship gets used a lot. And I think it's helpful to even consider about the word of God as a book of relationships. The Bible's ultimately, you could say, an entire collection of relationships. In fact, George Guthrie says it this way, God is a God of relationships who has spoken and acted to bring about and foster our relationship with him. It's no exaggeration to characterize his book, the Bible, as one long interconnected network of texts about relationships. In the scripture, we find love, and hate, and joy, and grief, hope, and despair, all in the context of interpersonal associations from Adam and Eve to David and Jonathan, to James and John, to Paul and Barnabas, to the author of Hebrews and his congregation. The Bible recounts lives set in an ever-present context of relationships, and behind all the lives looms the life, the story, the great lover, who from before time has envisioned and worked for a relationship with you and with me. We see in the language and in the character, in fact, even in the language and the communications of the words here in Hebrews 7, we see the language of relationships, drawing near to God. Jesus reconciles us. He is a priest who allows us to come holy and innocent before God. He restores something. There is now what we would say in this chapter a shift that takes place. The old covenant to the new covenant. In fact, in chapter eight, if you keep reading, you're gonna see that fleshed out. This change that takes place. In fact, last week it says in verse 12, for there is a change in the priesthood. There is necessarily a change in the law. It uses the word change. There's a shift. There is a paradigm shift. There is a change in the way you relate to God now because of Jesus. It has been shifted and changed. And I'll tell you what, the change is a lot better. (laughs) It's a lot better than it was before. There is a better way, a better hope in which we draw near to God. A better hope, a better way. And again, that verse that we looked at, this old, it says in verse 18, on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. This Old Testament has been set aside because Jesus has fulfilled it so that on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The law, the priesthood, the Old Testament is served as a teacher, a schoolmaster, to teach you about your own inability to save yourself and your need for a savior to save you. It is to teach us about our need for God, that our separation from him, that there was enmity and strife between a holy God and mankind. The direction that we look to receive salvation is not inward, but it is upward to God, for he is the one who makes that way possible through Christ alone. And yet it's so incredible when we consider this that God, even though in our sin, he did not stand afar off, but he draws near. He did not stand aback, taken a surprise, but makes a way, and he develops a plan of redemption in which we read about from cover to cover. A plan to redeem you and to save you, to give you a better way, to give you a better hope, 
to give you eternal life. For Jesus becomes our priest to mediate for us. Jesus becomes our king to lead us. Jesus becomes the sacrifice that we needed to cover our sins. For he was not one who needed to make a sacrifice for himself. For he knew no sin. I love this quote. It's not original with me. Somebody said, he didn't need to make sacrifices for himself, but instead made the sacrifice of himself. Do you get that? He didn't need to make sacrifices for himself, for Jesus was perfect, but instead made the sacrifice of himself. And this is the better way. This is the better hope. Better hope, and today we're gonna look at this concept of a better promise, better guarantee, a better priesthood, a better sacrifice, all summarized in what we just spoke about. So I want us to look at this verse 20 here. Uh, Verse 20 is this oath that you're gonna see very quickly, just beginning with this better promise. The first point is better promise here after a better hope. A better promise that we've spoken about. If you've been with us, if you're joining with us, that's great. Thank you for being here. Uh, If you've been following through with our passages, uh, through our messages through Hebrews, you'll, you'll pick up on this. The word promise has come up a lot. Here in verse 20, it talks about an oath. You know, it's kind of almost one of those things you're like God makes an oath and he swears by himself and in the passages earlier talked about how God cannot lie. He cannot lie and yet so why is it that he needs to make a promise to us or, or swear by an oath? Well, it's something that he does for us to strengthen our faith, it says. But here specifically, it's like God uh, makes a vow. He gives a, a pledge and then in verse 21, it says that you are a priest forever and that God will not change his mind. You see that? I love that. He's like, God won't change his mind. He's not gonna go back or renege his, his promise that he has made. He is going to stand firm in that. When God gives his word, it is sure, and then you want a double surety? That is that God makes an oath and a promise on top of his word, okay? That's what he's saying he's doing. He's giving us a promise and a pledge on top of his word. You could say it's even like in a marriage ceremony, you, 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 you pledge to love someone. I pledge I, 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 to love my wife in sickness and in health. We vow to do that. And as a minister, we go through this all the time. But then you give a ring, right? And you put that pledge, that promise on as a ring. And it is a vow. It is a double oath. Through my word and through this ring, I vow to love you. Now, I hope that means something, right? But, but in, in a sense, what if God does that? How much more sure is that? You could say it's almost a guarantee, It's a guarantee. Well, look at that verse 22. Funny that I would segue with that word because in verse 22, it says guarantee, does it not, right? Look at verse 22. Jesus makes this like a guarantee. And in fact, he's not the, it's a guarantee. He's the guarantor, all right? So guarantee is mentioned also earlier. Again, if you've been following along in chapter six, I think it's verse 17, mentions also the word guarantee. But if you were to look at the Greek words, it's actually two different Greek words but they mean similar things in English and in Greek here. But in Hebrews 6, 17, it says that God guaranteed his word with an oath. He guaranteed it. And that word comes from the unique Greek uh, source of mediator, that God guarantees his word and he is the mediator between that guarantee in that relationship. Almost like a warrant. Remember we used that term? A warrant that as a higher Power provides authority and guarantee upon something that takes place that I can't just go to your house and enter it. The police can't just show up your door and, and want to search your house. No, if they don't have a warrant, you can't come in here, right? 
but with a warrant from a power that is higher than them, they come with the authority to enter and have access. Jesus is not only the higher authority, but also the access and the means whereby we enter a relationship with God. So in in chapter seven, verse 22, he goes on this idea again. And he says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better promise or a better covenant. That word guarantee or guarantor means that uh, is this a little bit different, but it's a similar idea. The King James, I believe the original says uh, that Jesus uh, made him a surety. Have you heard of that word, a surety? It's maybe a little outdated. The word guarantee fits, but they mean a similar thing. The Greek word is eguos. It means under good security. You can think of a security deposit. Maybe as if you're a kid, a, a security blanket, right? I know some of you adults still have those kinds of things in life too though, right? Um, so similar, this security blanket, this security deposit of what we talked about, a warrant. You could even think of it in context like this. A guarantee is like a warranty. To buy a warranty with your car to ensure and guarantee that if something goes wrong, it probably won't be in the, in the warranty and you're gonna have to pay for it, right? or it's supposed to be, under warranty. It's guaranteed to be fixed. Or many of you have purchased a house or made a con- uh, taken on debt of some sort and you have to put earnest money. Have you ever heard of that? Earnest money? I remember when I first saw that term, I had to look it up on Google. I was like, what is earnest money? You know, you, you're trying to act like uh, you know all these things, right? But earnest money is like, like, a, like a pledge. It is as a a certain amount of money that a buyer pays to a seller to demonstrate his good faith and his intention to keep and make that transaction. The amount of maybe usually a smaller percentage of the entire sale price, a fixed amount of sorts. Albert Barnes, a commentator uh, from many years ago says this, the Greek word for surety or guarantee that you see there, the Greek word there properly means this concept of a bondsman, one who pledges his name, property, or influence, that a certain thing shall be done. When a contract is made, a debt is contracted, a friend often stands in and becomes the surety in the case and is himself responsible if the terms of the contract are not complied with. A.W. Pink goes on top of that and says, a surety is one who agrees to undertake another who is often lacking in the ability to discharge his own obligations. It can imply the defect of the person for whom anyone becomes a surety for. The surety is a sponsor for another, standing in a room, acting for one, for the one who is incompetent to act for himself. He represents the other person and pledges to make good on those engagements. Thus Christ was not a surety or guarantor for God. <laughs> he needed none. For his, but rather for his own poor, failing, and deficient people who were unable to meet their obligations. <laughs> I certainly was. I was incapable of discharging my own liabilities. In view of this, Christ agreed to undertake for them, fully pay all their debts, and completely satisfied every demand which God had against him. That's an amazing, amazing quote. I don't know if you caught some of that. In fact, I, I found that quote in an old book. 
is an old dusty hardcovered book. You know, some people read those nowadays, right? And I, I found this quote in the book that I was reading on Hebrews. And in the margin, this is, is actually my grandfather's uh, book. He had it in his library and it's mine now. It's amazing. And so I'm reading it and every now and then in the margin on that quote, right under that quote, there's a line and it has a little arrow and it says in capital letters in pencil in my grandfather's handwriting, Amen exclamation point. Isn't that not cool? That he read those same words and was like, wow, and he wrote amen in the margin, and I do as well. That Jesus becomes our surety. He stands in our place. He pays our debt, and he guarantees that he will keep that promise, that you will not be lost. It's amazing. Genesis uh, 43 gives us an illustration of this. It's also in Philemon, these concepts. In Genesis 43, I'm not gonna read it, but you, you know, may be familiar with the story of Joseph. And Joseph is in charge, and at the end, the brothers come to, uh, to Egypt, and they're needing food and all this. And Joseph hasn't revealed himself, but he starts playing games with the brothers. And he says that you need to go back and bring your brother Benjamin to me. Do you remember this? And when he says that, and you need to bring Benjamin to me, they're very fearful and so he, they actually, Judah, one of the, the leader of the family at that time, Judah steps forward and says, let me be a surety to you. And he actually steps forward and he takes Judah and puts him in prison. And the brothers return back home and they bring Benjamin with them. Do you remember that? Judah stood as a surety or a guarantee that those brothers would return with what they said they would. It's also in Philemon. If you're familiar with that story, Paul volunteered to be a surety for Onesimus, a slave who had run away. And, and Paul says this in Philemon 18 and 19, if he, Onesimus, has wronged you or owes you anything, put it on my account as a surety. I will repay. Wow. Paul steps forward. I guarantee that this man is a good man and you'd receive him again. If he owes you anything, put it on my account. How incredible to think that not only human being interactions can happen in that manner, but that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, becomes your surety and your guarantee that he pays your debt. Greater and far superior is this, and that's what Hebrews has been doing for us, right? Hey, you think this is good? This is even better. You think Moses was pretty good? Jesus is even better. You think Joshua could give you rest? Look at the rest that I can give you. He is saying inferior, superior, inferior, superior. You think the Levitical priesthood could pay and atone for your sins? What if Jesus was your high priest paying and atoning for your sins? What could that do? See, the inferior and the superior. It's an incredible, mind-blowing concept that in our life there is almost nothing guaranteed I made a joke earlier about a warranty that usually runs out and by the time you need it, it isn't around, <laughs> right? What in your life is really guaranteed? You have tomorrow guaranteed? I think Aaron just talked about that. That we cannot guarantee tomorrow. What is your life? It's like a vapor. We don't know. We can guarantee on peace in, in Europe, right? We can guarantee that. <laughs> Nothing is guaranteed. The, the world changes in an instant and yet this fact of this passage tells us that there is one thing you can guarantee and that is one man. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That you can guarantee. You can guarantee it. Why? Well, because he's a better priest. He's a better priest. We looked at this better way, this better hope, this better promise, a better guarantee. Now, in closing, I want to look at these two kind of ideas, this better priesthood 
and the better sacrifice. They kind of work hand in hand as a priest makes a sacrifice to atone. Jesus is a better of both of those. (laughs) Jesus is the best mediator because Jesus is the best high priest. Priest, this bridge builder, Jesus builds a bridge that no one else could build upon. Because Jesus is a better priest, he's a better than all the the law and everything he fulfills that makes Jesus is a better priest because he's permanent and perpetual. Look at this, look at verse um, 23. You guys see this in verse 23? A former priest, think Old Testament, Levitical, priests, Levi, tribe of Levi, making priests in the tabernacle and the temple. The former priests were many in number, why? Why were there a lot of them? There was like a lot of Old Testament priests, why? because they died. (laughs) And when they died, you need another one. And when that one dies, you need another one. But what if your high priest never dies? What if your priest is with God on high and exists eternally and intercedes and mediates and atones for your sin perpetually and permanently? Do you see those two Ps? You got that? You're gonna remember that. Perpetually and permanently, okay? That'll stick with you later on, hopefully. He holds his priesthood permanently and perpetually. You get that mixed up in your mouth, right? It's an amazing fact. He continues forever. He continues in office because of verse 24 Verse 24 says, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He continues forever. He does not die. And it says later on, in fact, later on in the book, it says he always lives to make intercession for you. Verse 25, he always lives to make intercession for them, for you. Wow. Perpetual, I'm getting it mixed up here. Permanently perpetual. And then I even did it to myself again. He is powerful, okay? I did it again, right? We got that. You can remember that. Perch, <laughs> right? Perpetual and permanent and powerful. There we go, we got it. Why? Powerful, why? Because not only is he permanently doing this and perpetually doing this, but in fact is that it actually works. What if like you were just perpetually doing the same thing on and on? Like my, my children, I say sometimes to my wife, there is incessant noise in this house, right? With kid, three kids under the age of six, you're like, there's just incessant perpetual noise. And we often tell our kids, um, let's not just make noise for the sake of making noise, kids, right? And you try to say it in a nice way, right? And it's this perpetual noise. What if this is an actual perpetual thing that works and for benefit because why? What does it say in verse 25? These are some of the most incredible verses in all the New Testament. And maybe I say that all the time just because that's what I'm currently reading. But verse 25, consequently, this is, this is pretty cool. Okay, you guys don't miss this. It, consequently, he is actually able to save. <laughs> that's pretty good news. This isn't just like perpetual ineffectiveness, uh, um, you know, constant ineffectiveness, constant whatever of something that doesn't actually work, it actually works because he is able. Do you see those three little words there? He is able. We sing that as a kid, even in the kids' Sunday school songs. He's able, he's able, I know he's able. Maybe you don't, right? And you're like, keep going, Jordan. No, okay. He is able to save. Wow then it's like even to the uttermost because I've literally heard some people tell me before, you know, Jordan, I'd love to come to your church. I just don't know if really I'm welcome there. I don't know if I'm the type of person that's acceptable in your church, right? Why? Because so many people see themselves in that, that manner of I'm guilty, I've done too much, I'm the uttermost. 
I'm the person way over on the side. God saves these people. He doesn't save people like me because you don't know what I've done. The fact is that he's actually able to save to the uttermost. There is no place or person on this globe that his power of salvation cannot reach. Recognize that. There isn't a single soul on the planet that God does not love. He saved the world. This aspect of his gospel goes to all who would receive. See, this whole discussion this morning comes to a grinding halt if Jesus actually can't save you. If Jesus actually, well, is kind of powerless and just a figment of our imagination and just something we kind of like to do and waste some time on a Sunday morning talking about. But the fact is, he actually is alive and he actually saves because he is able to save. Do you remember the verse a few weeks ago that we ended the service with in Jude? Remember when we talked about uh, keeping us from falling, that God is able to hold you up and keep you from falling away? We ended with Jude 1, verse 24 through 25, a verse that my pastor growing up used to close many of the services with. He says this in Jude 1, verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Wow, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. You know what that means? Clean, innocent, pure, holy before the presence of his glory with great joy. How in the world could you go before a holy God? Because Jesus presents you to God. He intercedes for you. He's your guarantee and your guarantor. He is your savior. He is your priest. He is your sacrifice to atone for your sins. He is everything you could say. That's why we talk and sing about Jesus a lot around here. <laughs> he does a lot. And then this final point, and then we'll be done here, this final point is better sacrifice, okay? He, Jesus is that better sacrifice that is able to keep us from stumbling. Look at it, verse 26 to the end. It, it says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated, and exalted. That idea is very similar language to a lamb that was given in the Old Testament for sacrifice. A lamb presented in that needed to be spotless and blameless and without blemish. That lamb was used on the day of atonement to atone for the sins of the people. You couldn't have something that was sinful and blemished and broken, but rather something that was perfect. Of course, those things could never atone for sins, but they were a sign pointing to the final lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the perfect lamb, the unblemished one. Hebrews 10, we know he's unblemished because in Hebrews 10, verse 10, I'll just read this quickly. And by that will we have been sanctified through the one offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Why? Because every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But verse 12, but when, but when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. You know what he did? Did he continually stand and make sacrifice after sacrifice? No, it says he sat down in heaven at the right hand of God. And he says that it work is finished. Your sin is paid for. That he might bring us to God, as First Peter says, being put to death these things, that we would come and draw near to God. This is because Jesus is a sacrifice. And look back in verse 27, that he did this of Hebrews 7, verse 27. 
since he did this many times? No, he did this once for all when he offered up his sins. Uh, when he offered up himself. He didn't need to offer for himself. He offered up himself, right? He became the sacrifice on the cross for your sins. Jesus has completed what we had left undone and could not complete ourselves. Because this, what I just described to you today, this is the better way. This is the better hope. He's a better promise. And the oath that is verified on God from God's word, he promises and he guarantees it by sending his son Jesus Christ. He sends it by going there himself and then he becomes your better priesthood after the order of Melchizedek that we looked at this week. He is the final priest that is needed and then he sits down at the right hand of God because he has presented himself as the better sacrifice to atone for your sins so that what? We could have our sins atone? Yes, but that we could come into relationship with God Almighty and draw near to him. We would be in relationship Back to the beginning where we started, right? That we step into relationship with God because there's a better way of now reconciling that relationship with God. Not anything that I could do to earn favor in that relationship, no, no, no. But everything that Jesus has done for me so that I can be in relationship with God on high. It's done through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. By works are we saved but through grace. James 4, 6, in fact, says like, what is our response to this? As we think through now, as we close, our response is this concept that really ultimately, how is it that we receive this? How is it that we actually accept this better way? I think it comes through humility. For, for, for James 4, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. See, those of us who've recognized that we need that message that we just heard, we need to know that Jesus saves us and we don't save ourselves. That's humility and recognizing our position before a holy God. But if you can't get to that point, then there is this opposition to the proud, but rather he gives grace and salvation to the humble, whereby James 4 goes on and says what? The very famous phrase, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. How is it that you draw near to God? Through humility and belief and faith in him because a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God and in like manner because that relationship in the bridge of Jesus Christ has restored what was broken in the, in the garden, what is now restored is now open and free and we live in grace and liberty and when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for your good word. God, we know that sometimes these things can be hard to understand, but God, I pray that your spirit would help teach us where we need to understand. God, where I have fallen short from explaining, may your word, may your spirit go forth and help us to grasp and illuminate our understanding to your word. God, there are many things here that we are grateful for and thankful for. I'm thankful for every person here. Thank you, God, for them bless them, encourage them, give them the strength they need for today. Hope for tomorrow, as we say. And God, that that hope we have would be a better hope that extends beyond anything we could ever ask or think. God, that would give us a peace and would give us righteousness in a way that we need to live in our relationships with one another and ultimately our relationship with you, God. 
Thank you for bridging that gap, making a way, a better way for salvation. We praise you, God, and we give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.